0: Media Ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.cornerstone.org, or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter four. We've been going through the book of Nehemiah. And basically, we're, we, there's a couple of objectives here, I guess. One of those is we about to as we kind of go forward with some building plans and ministry expansion and different things like that over the next months and years, uh we we look into this because there's some good guidance here. But there's also in this, um, uh, as I've heard back from many of you, it's it's kind of how different passages and different series hit different people. And many of you have said, hey man, this is where we are living right now. This is actually what we're dealing with on a regular basis. And uh, so, I, and I know Carly and I could, could vouch for that. And so as we go through Nehemiah, do not lose a kind of a global perspective, a corporate perspective, but also know that uh, this is God's word to guide our lives. This morning, Nehemiah chapter 4, when we look back last couple of weeks, the people were beginning to build back the walls. The walls of Jerusalem had come down. The people of Jerusalem had been scattered and exiled all over different provinces, Babylonian, uh, some under the Assyrian rule, different things like that, and they were so apart. And under the guidance of uh, a man called Ezra, and now Nehemiah, God is starting to bring back the people to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And as he begins to bring them back, um, Nehemiah is the man that God has chosen to, to kind of lead this. And one of the things that we've seen in Nehemiah is that uh, he's a man who can think, on, he can think and, and he's pr- pretty good with practical thinking, but he prepares everything by prayer. He's led by prayer. And so we've learned this principle of praying and planning. Praying and planning, not just planning and then praying that it works. And so that's kind of where they are. But one of the principles that we looked at last week that we're going to see kind of uh, uh, refocused upon in Nehemiah 4 is that with a godly call, and not just as a church, and not just as a, a big embodiment of the body of Christ, but in your personal life, and a godly call will often result in spiritual warfare. And we began to look at that last week, and in Nehemiah's case, it came not only from a, a spirit of discouragement that is going to set out on the camp, but also from identifiable faces. There were people uh, that were governors around them, and uh, they did not want Jerusalem to become a power again. And think of a turf war. This had been their turf. And so they were in surrounding provinces and all of a sudden, you know, it's kind of like, uh, if, to use a sports analogy, you know, if you, you took somebody that, that just won the, the football championship year after year after year after year and all of a sudden there's somebody new coming in there uh, and that former champion for many, many years is no longer champion. These other teams, they don't want them to regain that former prominence. And this is kind of explaining where these, this opposition is coming from. These governors, these other leaders... So we don't want Jerusalem to be rebuilt because we were, we've heard stories about how mighty Israel was. And so that's kind of the setting there. And yet with all this opposition, we still see that the wall begins to be built. And last week we joked about reading through chapter 3. Uh, it looked real close to chapter 3. And, and we were joking a little bit about nobody, you know, <laughs> I love reading Bible names. Said no one ever, okay? <laughs> I mean, nobody ever says that. And when you look around in chapter 3, I do want you, I want us to go there. We're not going to read that uh, because I couldn't find any volunteers that wanted to, and I certainly didn't want to uh, because there's just a lot of biblical name there, names there. Um, I, I will, just a, a quick aside. When you don't know the biblical name, say it with gusto, and everybody else in the room will think, I didn't know that's how you pronounce that name, Okay? They're just going to assume that you know from your own study that this is the proper Hebrew pronunciation of this name. At least that's what pastors do. Anyway, look through chapter three, okay? And I want you to see if you, do you see a a predominance of two different words there? Now I realize that we have different translations, but there's, there's two words, at least in the ESV, that just are, it just, man, almost repeated every single verse. Do you see that? And, And what are those words? Next, I heard next. What was the other one? After, after. after okay? And so next, after, you know, we, we see that, and they really kind of mean the same thing. There's a, one other word that you're going to see a lot. It starts with the letter R. Repair. Repair, rebuild, okay? And so depending on your translation, you're going to see a repetitiveness. Now, so what is what do we gain from this? What is God trying to tell us by using this word next? Well, the next is this community of believers That here was the Jones family, and here was the Smith family, and here was the Johnson family. And they were just lined up side by side by side. And and it gives us that, hey, everybody's about this work. What is the work that they're about, this repair? And the point is that God's people are working together and working toward the same goal, but not without opposition. Is it possible to have God's call, the clarity of that call, the empowering of God's spirit in your life on that call, and face opposition. Very much so. In fact, the Bible says that we are not to be surprised by that. Look at verse 1, Nehemiah 4, verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that they were building the walls, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Okay. He sees that they're rebuilding the wall. This is one of those governors from a nearby province. All of a sudden, there's a turf war going on. And he's not just kind of has an opinion about it. This isn't just, you know, I don't like this. Does he seem like he's pretty passionate about his anger? I mean, when you use words like angry, enraged, and jeered, this isn't surface-level disagreement. That this guy is passionately against what God is doing there. And we saw that last week in 1 Peter 4 12, to come back to that verse real quick. Beloved, who's the beloved? The body of Christ. Okay, he's not talking about the world, he's talking about the beloved, the body of Christ. Beloved, do not be surprised at what kind of trial? The fiery trial. Doesn't mean, okay, man, you know, you had a blowout in one of your tennis shoes. Doesn't mean that, okay, all of a sudden you ran out of gas in the car. Doesn't mean all of a sudden, you know, an unexpected bill. Those are difficulties. Those are discouragements in our life. But I don't know that I would consider that until I get my next electric bill, that it's a fiery trial. Maybe I will change my mind, you know, with gas prices and stuff. But those are not fiery trials. But if we're about God's business... And we hear God's call, and we're actually moving with God's call. God says, "Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked that just because you're doing what is godly, that it's not going to come without opposition, and that that opposition is pretty fiery." Beloved, do you not know be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you. Is it to discourage you? No, it's to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. I've always wondered why some people are so opposed to Christianity, especially those that would consider themselves atheist. I've I've always wondered. It's always been confusing. Andy and I were talking prior to the sermon. I said, you know, the logic doesn't fit there. If you really don't believe in God, then why does any mention of God really offend you? How many of you get passionate? Let's go back to verse 1. Angry, enraged, and jeered. If somebody comes up to you and says, I believe in Bigfoot. How many of y'all, I mean, it's not just a mental disagreement. I mean, you get angry. Those are fighting words. You're passionate. There too. There is a Sasquatch. I don't believe. I think that we would have found a Bigfoot. I think we would have found a Sasquatch by now with all technology. I don't believe that there is a Bigfoot. But if somebody wants to believe it, that's good. I mean, I'll watch the the hour-long documentary and go, hmm. Okay, so it's not that you're not inquisitive, but do I get angry, enraged, and do I start jeering? No. It just doesn't strike that depth. But folks, don't be surprised that the mention of Christ, biblical principles, a biblical worldview... Kind of produces anger and enragement and jeering. And in one way it's kind of illogical to me going, okay, if you don't believe this stuff, just leave me to myself. Why does it bother you so much that I, that I would pray in Jesus' name? I mean, do you see the logic there? But the Bible says don't be surprised by that. It doesn't have to be logical. And we will find ourselves, as we pursue Christ more and more and more, as we begin to, to, to want to reflect his righteousness, more and more living out as we grow in Christ. Do not be surprised, folks, not just to find opposition, but opposition that is sometimes angry and enraged and will jeer back to you. And that's what happens here. Nehemiah four two. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, why are these feeble Jews doing this? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Question after question after question that he poses, all jeering, all with this angry tone, all pretty much enraging. Samuel tries now to enrage others to his cause by mocking the efforts. And does it work? Look at verse 3. Thir- uh, three. It certainly seems to, at least to Tobiah the Ammonite, was beside him and said, yes, yes, the wall that they're building, <laughs> if a fox goes up on it, he will break it down, that stone wall. In other words, he's saying, oh, yeah, you're building a wall. But if a little, like, 10-pound fox came along, not a big old gorilla, not some big behemoth of an animal with a little fox. It's probably going to fall down. How does Nehemiah react to this opposition? By surprise? He's going, man, I wasn't expecting that. God, you call me to do this. I'm, I'm trying, doing my best to listen to you, to pray and then plan. And, and, and we're trying to do this. And so God, why is there opposition? No, look, at, look at the words now. We have to be really careful here. And I'll explain why in just a moment. What are the first words of verse 4? Hear, O God. What is he doing? He's praying. Instead of planning how to face this opposition, what does he go back to? In that cycle, he goes back to praying again. As we said, you know, just because you pray, then plan, and then start to build, don't think that that cycle isn't going to repeat itself repeatedly. And that instantly, at times, you're going to have to come back and be right back on your knees, right back in this prayerful mode. And that's what he does. Now look at verse 4. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. A very bold prayer. Doesn't really follow the the lines of uh, New Testament Jesus. He says, bless them, Father, for they do not know what they do. In fact, there's quite debate. This is what we would call an impre- uh, imprecatory prayer. We see the Psalms. Some of the Psalms are imprecatory Psalms. And it actually, the, the prayers of the people are, let their teeth rot in their mouth. When's the last time that you prayed a prayer against opposition and somebody who's discouraging you? Let their teeth rot in their mouth. And so, there's great debate that in the New Testament, as New Testament believers, do we pray imprecatory prayers? Do we pray prayers that are really to affect God's judgment on their um, on, on the people? And we're, we can discuss that in another day. I can buy you breakfast, and we can discuss you know, different views on that. But suffice it to say that in Old Testament times, Nehemiah prays this and it's not bless them and go in peace. He says, God, get them. Sick them. Get them. And he prays this very aggressive prayer. And Romans 12 would kind of tell us not to pray that way. So I don't want everybody this week to go, let their teeth rot in their mouth, God. Okay, read Romans 12 before you would pray this kind of you know, strategic prayer there. now look at verse five. It continues, "Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked for they have provoked you. there's the secret there's the wisdom. they've provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders." Do you think you've ever crossed that line and you've taken up God's agenda and it became your agenda? Do you think you, in pride and whatever, that when jeering came your way, mocking came your way, when you were trying to build something, they said, man, even if a fox got on top of that, that would fall. Do you think that it ever crossed over from a righteous anger to a personal affront? We have to be really, really careful here. Because can we be right and wrong at the same time? We really can but here in Nehemiah, he prays this very imprecatory prayer. He had this very deliberate prayer, this very aggressive prayer. But he says, okay, God, they've angered you. Do you think Nehemiah was a little bit angered? Do you think he was a little bit personally involved as, as he's placing stones and, and he's drawing up the plans under God's direction, that he has a little bit of pride in his work and that that mocking kind of comes back into a personal nature? Yes, and yet, God, they've angered you. I can pray this prayer because they angered you, God. That key word is the response response by Nehemiah. And then he realized that the battle was not against him, but against God. Very easy mistake to make is is to make it about us guys. So so what happens? These people, they're building the wall and they're facing opposition, even though it's godly plan. And look what happens in verse 6. It's one of my favorite verses of the whole book of Nehemiah. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half of its height. They're 50% done. They're, they're halfway through. And look at the last place. For the people had a mind to work. Godly vision brings people together. doesn't mean that there's not going to be opposition, and that opposition can be from outside, or we're going to find out in just a second, even with from inside. But when it's a godly vision, and God's a part of it, and we really are seeking by prayer, and not just by our plans, God does incredible things, guys. You look back in history, and you're going to find incredible things that God led his people to do that just have no natural explanation whatsoever. Here are these people, all they have is rubbish, and they do have some materials that God has supplied, and they get together, and the Smiths are working right beside the Jones and the Johnsons, and these families kind of lined up there, and so they're working together, but they're not just doing the task of the work. They have a mind for the work. But look what happens. The opposition, do you think it's going to go up, or do you think it's going to go down? I mean, when you start getting along with God's plans, do you think that, hey, now that we've made it halfway, the naysayers are probably going to leave at this point. But that's not usually what happens. A lot of times they intensify. And look what happens in verse 7 and 8. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that they were repairing the walls of Jerusalem, was going forward, and that the breaches, that is the kind of the openings, the holes in the walls were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. Before they were angry and now they are very angry. Verse 8, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Do you see that, that, that part of verse 8, cause confusion? The Hebrew word is only used twice in the Bible, once here, and the other place in Isaiah 32, 6. Only two times in the Bible that that Hebrew, particular Hebrew word is used. So what we do as we study the Bible, when we see a word that is used just a, a couple times, okay, well, how is it used in this other place? Does it start to show us a little bit more of what the intention of this word is? Let me read to you Isaiah 32.6. Now again, we're talking about spiritual opposition from non-spiritual people in the, in the sense that they're not believers in God, and yet can non-believers in God present spiritual battles? Why? Because they are spiritual creatures. They don't have to be believers, but they are spiritual creatures. And so a lot of times it's going to go down, not to the surface, not just to, oh, here's my opinion, but it's going to be a passion. Why? Because we're spiritual creatures. And so sometimes even if we're not aligned spiritually correctly with God, we're still going to make it a spiritual battle. Why? Because we're passionate about that. And that's what happens here. Isaiah 32, 6. Now, as I read this, ask yourself, have I ever saw this kind of opposition in my life? This kind of spiritual opposition coming against me? When I'm just, I'm trying to live for Christ. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. Have you ever experienced that, guys? And, and, and did it say there in Isaiah that this was fight against, you know, this cause or whatever? What did, what did they say? To utter error concerning the Lord. That's where the battle is. What did Nehemiah pray before? The Lord. God, this is directed toward you. Folks, if it truly is a spiritual battle, the battle is the Lord's. You know, I don't like bumper sticker theology, but I I could maybe put that one on my car (laughs) with a lot of explanation, with a whole bunch of other bumper stickers, The you know, see next bumper sticker. The battle is the Lord's. If I look back on my ministry, if I look back on my family life, if I look back on my spiritual walk, some of my greatest mistakes and some of my greatest sins and some of my greatest failures is when I did not realize that it, the battle was the Lord's and the battle became Bobby's. Is that easy for that to happen in your life? Because again, pride. You're building the wall. If a fox comes, it's going to fall down. Probably not even a fox. You know, if the wind blows in the wrong direction, that's probably going to come down. And all of a sudden, we have this godly plan, and it's not about God anymore. It's about us, because we're the one that lifted that rock, we think, and put it on there. The battle is the Lord's, guys. And I think that we're smart enough to know that up here. I think we get pretty dense, pretty ignorant when it comes to opposition and all of a sudden words are starting thrown out and the jeers and the mocking comes. Yeah, even if a fox went on that wall, it's probably going to come tumbling down. This is relevant to our spiritual battles. This is r- relevant to really understanding the battle before us. So, so did they come up with a new plan? In the face of this threat that now these armies are, are going to organize together, these different provinces, these different communities are going to come together now in the front against the Jewish people? Do they come up with a new plan? Well, the answer is yes and no. Look at verse 9. First three words. And we pray. Seems like a pattern here. <laughs> and we prayed to our God. Now look at the next part. And set a guard as protection against them day and night. Do we serve a very practical God? Could God have protected them without this guard? Yes. But somehow he gave them, okay, pray. And part of the fruit of that prayer is, and go ahead and get the swords out of, you know, dust them off. And go ahead and get, you know, get a couple of spears and and get some shields and, You know, anything else you have laying around in the closet, go ahead and get those out and position these people there. Can you show that next slide? Praying, planning, praying, building, praying, planning. Following God's plan, this is going to be a continual process, guys. It's not one and done with the prayers. God bless and lead. And then we go out and we get the plan and we start building. In, in our lives, we we start doing. I promise you, when opposition comes, praying is going to come right back in there. Okay, it's, it's, The praying is the foundation of this cycle. Planning and building, hopefully, are the fruits of that praying. Does that, does that make sense? You have a foundation, and then you have the fruit of that foundation. And so the question for us, and we don't like this question, what's the foundation of our lives? The planning, the building, the doing, or the praying? That's pretty convicting. Enough said. I don't want to go there any farther because that's very convicting to me. I love the planning and the doing. I think God has gifted me in some ways to to be able to think and, and, and do, and I get excited about that. I can be honest with you guys. What you see is what you're going to get. I don't get as, as excited about praying. I, I, I don't agree that that should be a favorable thing. I don't agree that that should be a favorable thing for you to have in your pastor. I'm just being honest with you. I get more excited about planning and building than I do praying. But which one is the foundation and which one is the fruit? And so God teaches us here. And thank Him that He's patient with us. And thank Him that even in our failures and our fumbles, that that He recovers and that His grace leads us. Have have you ever wondered why God doesn't give you a five-year plan? When we think through it, it's because we have a temptation to make the plan the power. The plan. That's where the power is. And I, I think I'm on good theological standing here to say that the plan would become, could, could become an idol. We find safety in the plan. Even though it's a godly plan, we find safety in the plan. The only security we have, the only safety we have is in God himself, guys. And he gives us a godly plan, but that godly plan is is still going to be face opposition. Our comfort is not in the plan. Our comfort is the one who gave the plan. It's so easy to get that confused as we're living out life. They prayed, and then they adjusted the plan, and they put up a 24-7 guard to fight against the attacks. But then look what happens. This is a very important for us to understand this next application that we see in the Word. Verse 10 and 11. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will never be able to rebuild the wall. Well, what just happened? I mean, they're halfway done. They're doing it in record time. I mean, this is a personal record for each one of them. You know, yeah, personal record. PR today. Look at this. We built it up. We thought we were going to be here, and the wall's already this high. And so there's success that is happening, but opposition comes, and in the midst of this journey, halfway through, they get weary. Is it possible to have a godly plan to trust God with that plan, commit yourself to that plan, and still become weary? Yes. Thank you. You know, Have you ever wondered why? If it's so of God, then why do we become weary or sometimes why do we begin to wonder or why do we begin to wonder? Because we are still part, folks, there's a part of us that still has to deal with our fallenness. Let me say this theologically correct. Do you still have to deal with your fallenness? Okay. Our fallenness is not our identity. Our identity, if we're a Christian, is in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors. We are already seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. This is our identity. But we still have to deal with this fallenness and this nature. In a way, some theologians said it's like you're living in two worlds. And and one is the promise. And who's the real us? The real us is our identity in Jesus Christ. Does my sin, be very careful with this, does my sin now define me if I place my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ? It does not. And yet I sin every day. And I can allow that sin to start to define me. But that's not biblically, theologically correct. My identity is now in Jesus Christ. And that's not just kind of some theoretical theology. It is the truth of who you really are. And yet, as we see even here, even though your identity is in Jesus Christ and this is who you truly are, you still have to contend with the old nature. That's not just the Old Testament. Very much, go read Romans. And it will tell you all about that struggle. The fall never, no longer defines us, but it does affect us. We get tired, we get discouraged, and we are prone to lose hope. Yeah. Not only can we expect opposition from the enemy, but don't be surprised when it comes from within. This is not the enemy here. Verse 10 isn't the enemy. Now, verse 11, who are they listening to? It says, and our enemies said, this isn't the enemy saying it now to Nehemiah. This is the, the people they have heard with their ears, and they start to kind of reflect, and they begin to, to kind of say to themselves what the enemy has said. Verse 11, They will not know or see till we come against, uh, uh, among them and kill them and stop the work. In other words, We're going to make a a surprise attack. We're going to come against them. And all these people that have come together, and we're going to attack them. and, And they're not going to see it coming, and we're going to surprise them. That's what the enemy said, but who's saying it here? The people of God. Some people believe when it says in Judah... Some think that that's a place of location. Others are going to say that that's the tribe of Judah. What do we know about the tribe of Judah? The weak tribe or what we see as the strong tribe? Kind of the strong tribe. So if it's location, then, then that kind of fits. But I, I think that it really does kind of have that even those among the strongest tribes started to have some fear. They still had to deal with this opposition. Not only can we expect opposition from the enemy, but folks, we can expect it from within. And here's what I've discovered to be true in my own life. I have yet, and I hope I never will, witnessed a time when everyone was discouraged and hopeless at the same time. Hang out with enough people that have placed trust in Christ. And I've never witnessed that. I've never witnessed where 12 people that I knew had committed their trust and their faith to Christ, were all 12 were going, man, we're doomed. (laughs) The sky is falling. I've seen it work in my marriage. I get discouraged, and Carly is there with the word of God to encourage me. She gets discouraged, and I hope that I'm there with the word of God to encourage her. I've seen it in church. A family gets discouraged, and there's families that surround them that encourage them. This is the grace of our God. Will there sometimes be doubt in the midst of even the body of God's plan? Yeah. And yet I've never seen where it just was an overwhelming swell and everybody said, we're doomed. Very practical application of this text this morning, I believe. Surround yourself with Christian folks. Surround yourself with Christian folks who are growing in maturity in their life, in their Christ-likeness. But understand that even Christians, there's going to be two different types that are going to kind of give you advice. Some Christians say, here's how to fix it. And there will be other Christians say, look to God, here's who God is. And I've been both. As a pastor, people expect us to be answer men. Fix this. And in a very prideful way, you get used to, okay, here's the answer. Here's how to fix the marriage. Here's how to fix this troubled child. Do they need a fixing and and a suggestion, or do they need God? When you are facing opposition, when you're wondering, and that wondering starts to even lead into a wandering, what do you need? Somebody that's going to say, here's how to fix it, or do you need somebody to point to your God and see, like we sing this morning, you are the God of wonders, you are holy, holy, holy. That's the person I need in my life, guys. I'm not saying that we don't give wise counsel. Go to Proverbs and it says that, that, hey, seek wise counsel around you. But when you do that, guys, make sure that they are growing in maturity in faith and not just Christians. I just have the statement that they're a Christian, but they are growing. And you see Christ-likeness more and more and more reflected in their lives. Nehemiah does adjust the plan. He begins to station the people at the most vulnerable places. Very practical. But that's not his main message. Look at verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in other words, the most vulnerable parts that an attack could come in, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans and with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Now look at verse 14 and we'll begin to conclude. And I looked in a rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He said, here's how to fix your dilemma. Or does he point him to God? Does he point him to the hope that God is awesome and great? Could Nehemiah have developed a personal plan for Bobby and Carly Linkus on wall section 31.8b? He's a pretty smart guy. I think he could have. Hey, Lincoln says, here's what you need to do. And, and, and was part of the plan very practical? Hey, in the low places, in the vulnerable places, put guards. It's not that this is insane and absent of practicality, but what's his main emphasis? Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Now look at the last part of this, and we'll close here. And fight for your brother's your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Is it personal, folks? Is the spiritual battle personal? Are your wives and your daughters and your sons and your homes and your brothers at stake in the world that we live right now? So what do we do? We remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He, he will give a plan, and that plan will be at times very practical, other times very spiritual. It will be, you know, all combinations of just the way that God does God things. But don't believe for a moment, folks, that this spiritual battle is not personal. You may be a single mom and come oh, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed. How do I do this? We can give you a five step plan. And many will give you all the advice that you know has worked for them. And you're but you just don't understand. You need God. And you need some people around you that say, don't look at just working the plan. Look to your God who is great and awesome. Will that solve everything? I'm tempted to say yes. <laughs> because if I've got my eyes on the God who is great and awesome, guess what? That's what I needed. Is it going to be practical at times? Yes. What starts the wondering that can lead into wandering isn't just a head problem. It becomes to be a soul problem. That's where our disturbance, that's where our lack of peace, that's how we feel, why we feel overwhelmed. Does this make sense? I pray that we did justice to God's word, that we just didn't put our own faults in there, that, that we just assume things, but that God is trying to teach us here. So two questions. Who will you listen to in times of challenge? Get good, practical advice. There's wise people around you. The Bible says, seek out godly counsel. But mostly seek out people that are going to point you to how awesome your God is. Because that's your greatest need. Second application. What kind of person are you going to be in the body of Christ? The fixer? I'm so tempted to be that guy. I'm tempted to be that guy in our home. I'm tempted to be that guy in our marriage. I'm tempted to be that guy with our daughters and our grandchildren what do they need? My plans that make sense out of my years of great experience? Or do they need holy God? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. Father, give us direction. Father, we thank you for your word and Father, we can identify that even when we desire your plans, and and I'm not even assuming that most of the time we even desire plans, but even when we get into a spiritual position where we desire to, to have you lead our lives and we surrender our lives to you, that, Father, even then, there's going to be opposition. And that opposition is going to be from the naysayers and the mockers. But, Father, even from some within, that maybe at that point of their faith is going to be quite challenged. Their, their faith is going to be quite, kind of has, uh, the, the obstacle has overwhelmed them. So, Father, we know that this is not a mind problem, even though we think. And you've given us the ability to think. This isn't just a heart problem, even though you've given us passions and feelings. Father, this is a soul problem. This is deep. And the attack will come and hit deeply. So, Father, today, as we turn our eyes to you, will you help us to, to, to kind of sing unto you that it is well with our soul? Not because everything's been solved. Not because we have the five-year plan. Not even that we have agreement among even those that we would consider wise and, and, and good friends and It is well because you are sovereign God. You are holy and you know us by name. That's why it's well with our soul, Father. We love you and we thank you. And we pray in this hope of Christ. Amen.